I have kids in my classroom at school that have said, I know I'm addicted to my phone. I know it. And I ask them, do you feel inclined to get away from that? To be away from your phone right now? And they're like, yes, I don't want to be. And that to me is like heartbreaking. It's like, man, if youth ministries would just kind of wake up and recognize the kids aren't just little addicts. You know, we wouldn't, Mm -hmm. if someone came in with some kind of drug or alcohol addiction, like we wouldn't just throw them away and be like, oh, they're just addicts, you know? But Mm -hmm. that is, I think, the feeling that youth get from adults is that you're just addicted to your phone and maybe even from parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're throwing their hands up in the air saying something's broken, but we don't know how to respond. And the kids are like, yeah, neither do we, but please help. Right. (laughs) Please respond. Like, let's figure this out. I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. As we all know, uh, raising children in our contemporary world is not an easy thing to do. It seems as though new forms of evil and wickedness are popping up every day. Uh, New types of sin uh, seem to be right at the grasp of our children. And uh, there's a lot of things to maybe be fearful about, things to have anxiety about, things that we're just not sure how to respond to. Uh, As someone who has young children myself and who's worked with young people for the majority of my ministry, I recognize that there are a lot of different issues at the forefront of the enemy's plan. And one of those things is digital media, social media, and the access that we have to the internet and how integrated it is into our lives. It's posed a real problem. It's posed a real threat to our social constructs, and it's posed a real threat to the church and to the character of young believers who are saying that they want to be sanctified, but struggle with what they view and what they take into their mind. The dangers of overexposure to social media on children have actually been very well documented. For instance, uh, smartphones were introduced to the mass market in 2007. And by 2015, 92% of teens and young adults own them. Shortly afterwards, researchers found an immediate correlation between symptoms of depression and smartphone use. A 2017 study found that of over half a million 8th through 12th graders, 33% were experiencing high levels of depressive symptoms. Not only this, but children have easier access to pornography more than they ever have before. They're being less socialized because they're around people less, at least in face-to-face interactions. Uh, They're also probably struggling with uh, their cognitive growth, cognitive development, and their physical exercise. And so all of these things kind of compound in our society and are beginning to affect our children in very, very negative ways that we can now measure. So with all this in mind, I have invited youth pastor and LFBI instructor Jeff Grasher onto the show to discuss how all these things may be impacting families and so that we can get some biblical principles on how to respond to this new form of temptation in our children's lives. And so with that, Jeff. Jeff. Oh, Jeff, oh Jeff, hey. Oh, Jeff. hey. Hey, sorry. Just checking some messages. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to translate to the podcast well, no. but people who are watching on YouTube are going to think that's really funny. I hope so. So I, I, I turned to Jeff and he was on his phone. I tried. It was clever. <laughs> You've been in youth ministry for what, a decade now? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And in that time, I'm, I'm sure that there's lots that you've seen, lots you've observed. Uh, you've, you've watched the evolution. I, I mean, I can remember going into public education in 2009 and what I saw change mm-hmm. rapidly uh, in, the, in the 10 years that I was in teaching, uh, just in terms of access and, and what students were looking at and, and how it impacted their ability to emote and to, to think. And so after a decade of ch- uh, children's ministry and student ministry, uh, what are the ways in which you've seen students change emotionally uh, because of social media and, and the effects of social media? What changes have you seen personally in your own ministry and in your encounters with young people? Yeah. Well, I can even zoom out a little more. And when I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 2009. Mm-hmm. And at that time, phones were like not allowed in school, mm. in high school. Yeah. I remember one time my freshman year, I was really, I was funny in high school. I don't know if I am anymore, but in you're high so, school. You're so funny. They thought I was hilarious. So anyways, one time I, uh, I'm i like, I'm going to make my friends laugh. And I made a phone call. And my teacher usually liked when I would do that kind of like I was to joke around. Yeah, like, joking yeah. around. She yeah, was yeah. cool with it. But when I pulled my phone out and I called, she was like, Jeffrey, you take that to the office right now and, and you can get it after school. And she was really upset. And mm-hmm. I was like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I thought I thought I was you know, I thought I was hilarious. Yeah. Because you know? the thought was at the time that the phone was an impediment to learning. Yes. Right? right. And that it got in the way. It was a distraction. And right. so we shouldn't have it in the classroom. Mm-hmm which is completely different than what we see today. Well, it's ambiguous today. So like tech tech in 2009 was not really integrated into classrooms. And then even just a short couple years after that, when I started, um, so I'm in college and then I get to do student teaching. And by the time I'm student teaching at Raytown South High School, a local high school around here, they were, they were talking about, we need to get laptops for all the students. Mm-hmm. And one, that was one-to-one, the one-to-one one, initiative. The one-to-one initiative. Yeah. And, and it was kind of revolutionary. Like the kids are like, we need them, we need them, because they had computer labs, which is what you know we had. And now I don't know of a school that doesn't have laptops or some kind of device like that for all of their students, mm-hmm. even down even down through middle school and elementary, and elementary school. Yeah. So um, the broader technology um, integration is is also a big part of social media, is a big part of the access that kids have. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what started as uh, good, well-meaning uh, um, tools for students to learn has turned into tools that are like a double-edged sword. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it can help. It really can, but it can also it can be um, detrimental, like you said. So to answer your question... Um, I've seen students become, especially in the last five years, you know, COVID has a big role in this yeah, too. Yeah, it's a variable. But um, the students are far more, um, they're actually, they, they are, they're apathetic, but even more than that, they're disgruntled because they're upset that they're apathetic and they're actually cognizant of it. Like mm-hmm. we tell them that enough as teachers and as youth leaders, like you, this generation, this generation, this generation, they hear that a lot, and they're frustrated with it because mm-hmm. they recognize, like, yeah. yeah, I am apathetic, yeah, and I'm also really bored in right. school. I mean, that's the comments I get as a teacher, like, you know, hey, how can we fix this? Do we have a phone problem? And, and they're like, yeah, we're just we're bored out of our mind. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because the phone and and the connection to social media 
demands constant entertainment, right? So the idea is like, I'm used to constantly being entertained, visual stimulus, audio, audio stimulus, constantly. When you go into the classroom setting, you're, it's not that entertaining. Like you learn in, in, a, in most settings, you learn by being bored. Mm-hmm. Like you've got to still your body. Uh, it's not a sensory experience uh, as much as just, it's just an auditory experience where you're gleaning and you're taking notes and, and it's supposed to be boring, right? Mm-hmm. Like and that's how you learn is, is in settings that are quiet and meditative. Yeah, but, but, but it's, it's complex. It's tough because so as youth leaders, as teachers, you know, I hear from administrators, we have to be engaging. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between engaging and entertaining? And that, you know, like their devices are entertaining and engaging, but they're more entertaining than they are engaging. Yeah. And the teachers, leaders are called to be engaging. So now we're competing with the device for their attention, for their um, for their focus, for yeah. their for their energy. I don't know if this analogy r- really works, but this is what I was kind of thinking of. So a friend of ours, Mitch Medlin, has cows and he's raising cows. Yeah. And which I got is to- really humorous if you know him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, keep going. So this cowboy Mitch, he I got to go with him one time and he he takes me and he has these calves, right? And so before we get to the calves, we go and we throw hay out for the big cows, right? Mm-hmm. And then we go and we're going to feed these calves. And he uh it was like so mechanical. You know like when when we feed our own children when they're little baby infants, it's like it's sentimental and it's like precious and beautiful in my mm-hmm. mind, you know, in this moment where you're rocking the baby with the bottle. But he stirs up these gigantic cow baby bottles mm-hmm. and he sticks them on a on a gate thing. He doesn't, you know, necessarily always hand feed them. He sticks them up on there and they just all like rush in and they're all fighting for this right. bottle. And it is kind of it's physical, it's mechanical. They're receiving nutrients. They're receiving what mm-hmm. they need. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's a simple thing. It's yeah. not it's it's pragmatic and straightforward, which education has to have that that there there has to be constructs. There has to be yes. there has to be stillness. And it's it does come in opposition to the stimuli that s- students are facing every day as they scroll second by second by second. Things yep. are constantly changing and it's and it's constantly firing off uh, dopamines and it's and it's yeah. firing synapses and so they're they're addicted to this kind of it's not physically demanding but mm-hmm. it's um, it's sensory demanding and school doesn't necessarily provide and in fact can't and shouldn't compete with it yeah but to get back to the emotional part mm-hmm. of what we were talking about I mean I think one of the things I saw I, this is just an example from from my time in education in my first year or two of of teaching. Um, we had a student at our school pass away in a tragic accident. Mm. And I remember, this is, you know, this is 2009, 2010. I remember the response in the school from the students was serious grief. Mm. Um, Kids were openly emotional. There were tears in the hallways. There were students comforting each other. And in the 10 years of teaching, we saw several students pass away. As I was getting further to the end of my tenure, um, what I was saying is that if a student if a student died tragically, it was almost as though the students didn't know how to respond. It's, this mm-hmm. is the apathy that you were talking about. It's like mm-hmm. they didn't know how to properly engage their emotions. And so it, it did manifest in depression and despair, 
But a lot of that was related to the fact that they didn't know how to engage what they felt. Mm. Something was lost. And as we know, um, an addiction to social media uh, produces similar effects uh, as addictions to pornography and addictions to drugs on the development of the frontal lobe mm -hmm. of young people, mm -hmm. right? And the brain isn't fully developed until kids are like 24, 25. And so it stunts the part of the, of the brain that deals with empathy and the ability to navigate complex emotions and feelings. Yeah. And so there's something, there's something is happening to our kids' brains because, uh, and we're talking about physically, biologically, something's happening because they are finding themselves addicted to, addicted to social media. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. And we see it in our churches as well. We see the effects within the church as well. So how, how do these emotional de uh, deficiencies, from your perspective, affect students spiritually and their, their ability to connect in ministry? So yeah. let's, get, let's, you know, let's hone in on the church yeah. and youth ministry itself. How do these things begin to impact the way in which we do ministry and engage with kids? Yeah. I think um, what is happening is what you've observed is that they are less externally um, emoting and processing and processing with people in real life. Mm -hmm. And um, what they're doing now is they are, it's kind of weird, but they are processing and communicating uh, online. And so they're expressing their grief and, you know, you'll see mm -hmm. posts about, you know, the, the loss or whatever, and they'll post a video or they'll post a, a message. And what is happening is now a lot of things are so digital. And so when, when we might look in a class full of youth that seem apathetic and they seem disengaged or they seem unentertained or whatever, a lot of times those students are actually social, quote unquote, socializing. Right. They're connected, right? just not here. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's faux. It's not real. They, like it, Because it's curated. Like the thing that you're talking about, it's really interesting because when they proclaim some sort of emotional sentiment online, um, they have the ability to, to curate something in relation to the expectations of the people that may right. be observing. So mm -hmm. there's all these, there's all these voyeurs, these, there's all these, you know, they're amused to someone else. And so they, they're constructing something that is expected, mm -hmm. where in real life, we should be able to verbalize and work through and, and bump up against each other yeah. and process communally. And you're saying that's, you're saying that's missing. Yes. And I, I would also, I would suggest that they want that. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you take a Bible study, for instance, and you gather a bunch of young people together, they actually... They, they learn and grow to thrive in those kinds of connections, and they, they want it. And I always have youth that say to me, you know, I feel disconnected. I feel like, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm not able to grow. I feel like there's no one who gets me, who relates to me, and I want to grow in my walk with the Lord. And, you know, there's a group of sometimes 25, 30 teenagers in the room. It's like, what do you mean? They're all right here. Yeah. But but we can't allow them to just be in a group of 30 and expect them to make those in-person connections because what is more natural for them, what their what their um, default connecting will be is what's most accessible and easy, which is online. Mm -hmm. So when, when we've created these Bible studies 
um, we've seen that kids, they really enjoy being able to set their phones aside, to set social media and, and those things aside and just listen to each other and engage with the word. And, and there's like emotional connection taking place, but that, that kind of goes against the grain of what youth ministry is like been promoted as for the last 20 years or whatever. Yeah. So know? what do you, I mean, when you say that for our listeners, what do you mean youth ministry has been promoted as? Explain. Well, I think it goes back to, as a teacher, I feel like I have to compete with the phone. Mm-hmm. So as a youth leader, I feel like I have to compete with the phone. I have mm-hmm. to be as entertaining as entertainment to get kids to want to come and engage. And and like that makes sense on the surface if I'm just trying to get kids to come and be part of this thing. Right. But that's not what the kids want, and that's obviously not what we want, but that's what youth ministry has been stereotyped as, is this just big entertainment, you know... um, Event-oriented. Yeah. Yeah. Event entertainment-based ministry, if you want to call it that. But uh, I think the kids really do... Like, I have kids in my classroom at, at school that have said, I know I'm addicted to my phone. I know it. And I ask them, do you feel inclined to get away from that, like to be to be away from your phone right now? And they're like, yes, I don't want to be. And that to me is like heartbreaking. It's like, man, if youth ministries would just kind of wake up, like if churches would wake up and recognize the kids aren't just little addicts, you know, we wouldn't, mm-hmm. if someone came in with some kind of drug or alcohol addiction, like we wouldn't just throw them away and be like, oh, they're just addicts, you know? But mm-hmm. that is, I think, the feeling that youth get from adults is that you're just addicted to your phone and, and maybe even from parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're throwing their hands up in the air saying, I don't really do I know do? what to do about this. It's a fact of our new reality. And so we just got to cope with it and deal with it and do the best we can. But but yeah, something's broken, but we don't know how to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids are like, yeah, neither do we, but please help. Right. Yeah. <laughs> please respond. Like, let's figure this out. Right. And so youth ministries, that is a big part of, I think, um, young young people, youth people, maybe people who come out of youth ministries, they get it. Like, I'm a millennial, but I hang out with teenagers all, all day. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm a hybrid. Yeah. Like, I feel like I understand both of those perspectives a right. little bit. It's kind of my job and people in in my situation to figure this out. Like, yeah. I've got to figure out the social media connections. Yeah. And we're losing. I'm behind. Like, We don't have to one-up phones, mm-hmm. right? We don't have to one-up the stimuli. What we need to do is we need to build roadways to true human connections. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, to make interpersonal relationship at... Uh, at the center of what we're doing in ministry, our ministry activity should revolve around m- taking these isolated individuals and and bringing them into um, you know social a- environments that are vulnerable, open, um, accepting, loving, challenging that challenge them emotionally, uh, that address their issues. Because the truth is, youth ministry can't be the solution. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times parents are quick to blame youth ministry when things are falling apart. Look, youth ministry didn't work. No, actually, uh, your parenting uh, didn't work. Um, The youth ministry is just a support system. It's Mm -hmm. just in order to help uh, reinforce what should already be happening in the home. We can't fix those problems. But so many homes are full of families where they are all isolated. Mm -hmm. They come home 
and the last parts of their evening are spent on the couch with the TV on, with phones up, video mm-hmm. games going. And, and then at some point, people become drowsy and they fall asleep and they start the process all over again. And so parents are just as victimized, you know, yeah. if we're talking about being victims to social media, right? right. And those, if we just want to use those terms tongue in cheek, right. um, adults are just as much susceptible to these problems and they're falling prey as well. Mm-hmm. And the teens see that. Mm-hmm. So the teens here get off your phone. Right. Could be an addicted to your phone. And then the person who just told them that is addicted to their phone. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, so it makes it confusing and there's even more disconnect. And I've, I've kind of thought about um, this analogy for parents specifically that, you know, when my daughters are old enough to drive, I'm looking forward to the time where I get to teach them how to do that. Mm-hmm. That sounds fun. Um, but I drive a 1992. Ford F-150. So it's a very simple vehicle. I've seen it. It's a beater. It's a beater. Yeah. But it's simple and, and it, you know, I feel like I could teach my kid to drive that. But what parents have to do today is they have to teach their kid how to drive uh, an electric vehicle. So what I mean by that is like, I don't even know if I could open the door of a Tesla. I don't even know how to get in there. Yeah. Like, do you push a button? Do you scan like... And then, and then when you get in there, how do you turn it on? And then it's like a full display of electronics. I mean, I feel like I'd be driving an airplane. Yeah. But it is just a car. And parents have the task of, you got to learn how to drive a Tesla because that's what your kid's going to have. And if you can't learn to drive it and then learn to teach it and help coach your kid to drive it, then they're going to get in this Tesla and they're going to kind of figure it out. But they're teens, so they're going to fall asleep at the wheel and it's going to malfunction. They're going to, I mean... Yeah. There was a video that came out recently of a woman asleep at the wheel of a self-driving vehicle. That's crazy. Yeah, which is obviously the... That's the scariest idea. That's scary, yeah. Right? But it's a perfect picture. Our kids are asleep at the wheel, uh and this device is just driving them wherever it wants to take them. Yeah, yeah. And they they may have have put in the destination and the GPS, but they don't know where... I mean... I don't know. He doesn't. You don't know what sketchy areas they're going to pass through in order to get to where they. That's you know. good. Yeah. Exactly. And I think you and I often talk about the the idea, just conceptually, that we would never let our turn our stu- our, our young kids, our 12, 11, 12, 13 year old kids, loose in Las Vegas for a night, right? Or in Amsterdam, right? Let yeah. the red light district. We would never do that. And yet, uh, at their fingertips, at nine p.m. on a Tuesday night. They can scroll anywhere they want to go, and it's not any different. They have complete access to the to anything that they want to find. It's out there, and they're not being held accountable. Uh, in most cases, they wake up in the morning. It's the same thing. They come down for breakfast. Yeah. Did you finish your homework? No, I didn't. Parents are frustrated. Get off your phone. Well, they don't. You know, they've not been taught how. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about is that yeah. they need someone to instruct them, yeah. take them by the hand, and show them. Mm-hmm. So that leads us to this idea that there, there are principles that parents should be aware of to help, you know, properly understand the issue and, and to guide them in parenting. And so maybe let's start with the, the biblical principles um, that are obviously the foundation for any interpersonal principles or, or practical principles that they might employ. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the two that come to mind for me are um, moderation, letting your moderation be made known mm-hmm. to all men. And and then fleeing youthful lust. So like the so with that one, the algorithms are in place that if you 
if if someone just starts scrolling through Instagram or or TikTok or whatever, whatever videos or images or whatever you you camp out on, they're gonna send more of that. Yeah. Right. And so they are gonna they're gonna make this little chamber of your interests because they're collecting it as you're entertaining yourself by it. Um and if if you let the lust of your flesh or the lust of your eyes um have its way with whatever you're looking at, maybe it's not explicit pornography. Maybe it's just images of girls on the beach mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. It's gonna keep sending that to you. And if you don't know, because your parents and whoever is teaching you, hey, here's how you respond to that. You flee from that. Right. You you enable protections, Mm -hmm. uh, restrictions from that stuff. Then you're just going to keep consuming it, and it's going to keep consuming you because it's set to do so. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think the moderation thing, it's it's becoming more than... Um, just a set amount of screen time. Mm-hmm. I think moderation looks like uh, what apps you're using and as far as you know how long you're using them, but what apps you're using, what does that look like, having accountability within them. Because like you said, it is, it, there is access to dangerous, like yeah. physically harmful things. That's a really good point. So like the first thing you referenced there was this idea of screen time, which, you know, I'm a millennial, I've got kids. The, the thing that I have... Um, has you know, as I've learned to parent, the thing that I'm constantly hearing, I think it's really valid, is you need to limit the screen time. And so I've, I've, my wife and I have created and established kind of guidelines for the amount of TV or iPad time that our kids get. My kids don't have phones yet, mm-hmm. and so we're very careful with that because we know actually when we've seen excess, we see behavioral changes. Mm-hmm. Like if if for whatever reason there's some extenuating circumstance, um, you know. Uh, my youngest has spent too much time on the iPad watching, you know, ca- cartoons. Mm-hmm. I see a behavioral change in her. Yep. You know, she is short tempered and 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 is more prone to maybe talk back or be sharp with us, mm-hmm. which does not end well for her. Uh, that gets corrected. But mm-hmm. the point is, is that this the idea of screen time has been a prevalent one, and I think it's an important form of promoting moderation. Yeah. But what you're saying is that we need to be moderation even in terms of the types of apps that we're selecting and looking at because not not every app is equal. And man, especially if we're talking about TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um TikTok has is has been proven uh to be incredibly dangerous. Like it compounds all the problems with the other social media platforms. Mm. It compounds them like times 10. Mm. There was t- like 12 people in Canada recently had serious seizure episodes because of the amount of time and exposure they were having on TikTok. And I, I, I don't ex- understand the science of that, but that's yeah. but there are serious problems that are physiological, biological, but also cognitive emotional. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be aware of that. And you're suggesting that there's moderation even in terms of what we allow our kids to have yeah. access to. Yeah, absolutely. Because, so there's those things. But there is nonstop connectivity um, with among teens. So, for example, um, when something juicy happens at school. Yeah. A fight, um, something scandalous. Uh Without being too specific, there was something extremely juicy mm-hmm. at work. 
Okay. This week. I mean, like... At the high school. At the high school. Like, terrible. Yeah. And nothing has been proven. No one knows for sure the facts of this juicy, scandalous situation. And the students are absolutely destroying a couple people online. Like, yeah. they, they are saying and, and posting very, very hurtful things. Oh, yeah. So if your teen, let's say you're, you're, my, my kid doesn't even post, let's say, mm-hmm. but they're reading that and they're seeing that and they're, they're seeing the energy and they're like, you know, when you spill the tea, everybody wants to like watch and mm-hmm. participate. It's yeah. natural. Yeah. Like there's, there's potential that maybe they just hear or they get involved or maybe they just, they like something or they share something mm-hmm. and it just starts. And then it's like little by little, y- you can get consumed in the, into this circle of gossip and into this drama. It's corrosive. And it, yes, it's very corrosive. And there's so much of that happening nonstop. I mean, every time a fight breaks out at work, mm-hmm. there's multiple cameras up instantly. Yeah. I mean, they're so quick. They... They're like, they should come work for the postscript. I mean, they're like ready yeah, to right. record, you know, like they're good. And and I can't even stop them, you know, like you no. jump in and you're trying to break it up and they're already, like I'm famous on TikTok for a couple fights. There's one where, I, you know, the, there's a fight that breaks out right in front of my classroom and, and uh, you know, I, I had my coffee in hand, right? And I'm just, it's not even 7.30 in the morning yet. And these kids come up, and they're talking, talking, talking. And I'm kind of oblivious. I'm also kind of asleep. So I've got my coffee there. And these girls are starting to go at it, and I know they have a history. Then all of a sudden, they start mauling each other. And I'm like, oh, I better jump in here, right? So I I set my coffee down because it's hot, and I don't want to spill it. And I also don't want to just drop it and run. Mm -hmm. So I set it down, and then I jump into the fight. Well, what was just as famous... As the fight that broke out, yeah, was a video they made of me, Mr. Gracier, Mr. Gracier, very calmly, his coffee down, and they made, and they're brilliant too. They made like this this meme of it where they they dressed me as Michael Jackson, and I guess I posed in such a way that it looked like I was dancing. I mean, it was amazing. But imagine I'm a teenager, and then my image and this story about me yeah. gets blown up. I mean, like. That could be devastating for my confidence, for my social circle. I mean, it could get real messy real quick. But. Yeah, and and we know that if students aren't prepared to handle that, mm-hmm. right? If they're not mature enough to navigate those waters that are murky, and um, you know, and to to intellectually and emotionally say this is wrong, right? this is acceptable and to categorize and associate things properly, divide things properly, if you will, Mm -hmm. they're going to end up um, hurt, um, disappointed, uh, depressed, frustrated, angry, uh, have a false sense of justice, Mm -hmm. right? They'll be, they'll get wrapped up in or, or sucked into a way of thinking that is totally worldly and, and lacks any form of biblical reasoning whatsoever. And so it's, they are so susceptible in those moments if they're not prepared, mm-hmm. right? And so what are, some, what are some other, you know, developmental principles that need to be involved here? Because I think if parents are going to establish rules for their home, principles mm-hmm. to abide by, 
a lot of that has to be related to the maturation and the spiritual and psychological development of their kids. Where are they at? Because every kid is different. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the things that we need to know about um, our kids in order to respond to where they're at developmentally? Yeah. Well, one, teenagers or preteens are particularly social in that stage of life. So they're craving connection, particularly with their peers, right? So as they develop, you know, they're trying to find people that they can feel secure with. And, you know, everyone kind of knows because everyone kind of says, oh, the people you hang out with in high school or middle school, you're not going to know them after you right. graduate. So I have one buddy that I stay kind of in contact with from high school. And so I think that idea that these relationships are temporary, mm -hmm. they are fleeting, is an important insight for teenagers to know, for parents to know, but also to be aware that they, you know, teenagers don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. That is actually their world. Yeah. And they crave and they need uh, to be close and accepted. Next, they need to be accepted. And that's part of their development. Um, and so with that, I think what parents what parents can do, what they would be wise to do, I believe, is to have regular conversations, not necessarily where they're instructing and, and giving information and insight, but rather where they're receiving it from their students, where they're winning their heart through just conversation. Mm -hmm. Because that connection can go a long way. And, and they're going to say things they don't. Teenagers don't have things figured out a lot of times. Sometimes they do. They say it like they do. They say it like they do. <laughs> but it doesn't mean they do. And they don't even necessarily believe that they do. Right. But they are just processing. They're, they are, they're, they're scratching. They're, they're trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And they need to verbally process it. And a parent would be wise to just receive that and hear it. And, you know, it's like evangelism. You know, you, you, you enter a conversation with somebody who believes... God is a toad or something crazy. <laughs> right. You know, you don't yeah. just say, well, that's stupid. No, that's wrong. You say, yeah. oh, well, that's interesting. Like, tell me more. Or, yeah. you know, like you navigate a conversation and parents more and more when, when students are prone here and parents are prone to be here and to be busy, that conversation is, is key. And I think it's a lost art for parents mm -hmm. yeah. right now. Yeah, but. for sure. Um, what about the stages in which, you know, I think parents probably need advice too about you know, let's let's stay in this kind of elementary, middle school time time frame because that's where where we're at, kind of with the conversations and the, and the developmental skills that you were discussing. Um, what's some advice you give parents to consider in terms of exposure for kids that age? So how much exposure should they have, and how what what are the things that you need to consider when setting those boundaries and giving access? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's uh, complex in that certain parents have the liberty to have a shorter leash mm -hmm. on the kid, meaning, you know, if, if your kid's not asking for a phone, well, please don't give them a phone. Right. If your kid is asking for a phone at 10, well, how long can you wait? I mean, how long can you hold that off? Because... I don't know if this is true exclusively, but the sooner the worst, mm -hmm. I would guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, I think the dynamic between the parent 
and the kid is is important for determining uh, when and how giving them technology mm-hmm. looks. I would hope that you know you can you can give a phone because it's necessary, not because it's just privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say, man, as soon as they need it to contact you after yeah. school, get them a dumb phone. Get right. them get them something that you know they can just use for very very practical yeah. familial reasons reasons but uh that's kind of complex because mm-hmm. their peers are probably going to have the flashy newest you know phones that cost hundred dollars yeah and i think and, i think parents need to remember that when the kid pulls the card well my friends or the kids at school that that is that should not be a persuasive argument right for parents and i think a lot of parents fall prey to uh, the you know because we don't we want the best for our kids we want mm-hmm. our kids to have better than what we had mm-hmm. and so when we hear well our peers have this such and such and such I think our immediate reaction is well if those parents are providing it well I can I can provide that as well mm-hmm. right so we're not even we're not even thinking about what's best anymore right uh, we're we're comparing ourselves in many cases to the most worldly people what the most worldly secular people are right. doing. And we just can't do that. And we've got to train our kids. They'll thank us in their 20s. Right. They might not love it when they're 12, yeah. but by the time they're 25, they're going to say, you know, um, my parents disciplined me and they didn't let me have a phone and they didn't let me mm-hmm. date until you know such and such age. They didn't let me go out and date. And they did that. You know what? I'm really thankful for it. Yeah. In the moment, in the moment, they don't like it. Yeah. One of the things that you, um, that you brought to my attention and I, th- I think is worth noting is that the maturity, the emotional maturity of a kid is also an important part of this. And so mm-hmm. some kids at 11 are incredibly emotionally immature. Mm-hmm. Because of that, there should be limitations, you yeah. know, access limitations based yeah. on that immaturity. Because the moment that you expose them, we already know from observation, from the statistics, um, that it will only compound the emotional problems that they have. Right. So the emotional immaturities need to be dealt with before we give them more privilege um, and give them exposure that we know that they're going to have to work through and navigate. There's going to be some difficulties associated with that. Why throw them into the lion's den before they are emotionally or spiritually mature enough to handle it? And that's a hard conversation. Yeah. And Pastor Sam... He he he's told me something that I'm I'm kind of hanging on to is my my girls are all still six or under and mm-hmm. so I know I've got time before I have to confront this issue but he's he's said that you know you win your your kid's heart and then you keep their heart it's easy to win them when they're really little mm-hmm. and then you keep them and it's easy to keep them while they're little but as they get older you continue to keep their hearts because you're gonna you're gonna have to have some really hard conversations yeah. And this is one of them. And so you, by the time they're 10, 11, and you have to tell them no to this thing that, again, they feel is a necessary tool to connect, you've kept their heart. They're going to be mad at you. And that's, I think, a reality of parenting, that your kids, when they are in adolescence and figuring out emotions and hormones and life, they're going to be mad at you. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be able to, to, with wisdom, retain their heart and still retain the integrity of not giving them something that you know to be harmful for their development and, mm-hmm. and for their life. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. 
My name is Melissa Wharton, and I am a discipler, Bible study leader, and LFBI student. I'm thankful for LFBI because while I'm a nerd and I love learning about things like history and Bible facts and the deep things of God, my professors always take us back to the simple truths of Scripture. Whether I'm in the Genesis class, servant leadership, or manuscript evidence, there's always something practical for me to take away and apply to my own personal walk with Christ, to my discipleship relationship, or to the girls I lead in Bible study. If you're a Bible study leader, counselor, or discipler, and you want to learn more about how to apply the Bible to your own life and your ministry, consider enrolling in LFBI classes today. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org support. I like that you mentioned that there's stopgaps too, and that, that we should measure things in terms of need. Because we do live in a world where technolo- technology is, is needful in different instances. Mm-hmm. And your need for technology will likely increase with your age and the closer you get to the workplace, right? Um, to the workplace experience. So my son is 11 and he has not once asked for a phone. But I know as he gets to middle school that he is going to be at basketball practice and soccer practice after school. And the stopgap for us, we've already determined in our mind, is what you referred to as a dumb phone. But you know, I've, I've even seen my friends will get an, an Apple Watch for their kid that mm. they've, they've put limitations on, and um, they only use it to text uh, or to call their parents and, you know, and to maybe track their, their steps for the day or whatever. Yeah. And so there's, limit, there's limitations that are mm. set on it that are, are based on what do you need at this given time. Um, and then we will grant you greater access uh, as we see the need, yeah. but also as we see the maturation associated with that need. Right. Yeah. Which I think is a really wise approach. Yeah. yeah that's good. So you primarily work with high school age kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice might you offer parents of teens who want to give their kids more and more autonomy? Mm-hmm. So they're hitting that age where there, there is an acceleration of access. There, there should be more autonomy. There should be more free will. Oftentimes, it's probably not earned, which is a problem. Yeah. But, but as they enter those stages where they're giving their kids more access, what are some governing principles that they should consider as they let their stu- students explore new things? Well, I think we've said a lot of a lot of it principally, but applying it to high schoolers, um, even the need component. I have students in school, they're not believers as far as I know, and their parents, not believers as far as I know, um, haven't given their kids phones Mm -hmm. while they're at school. Like, that is an option. (laughs) You know, you don't have to give your kid what they want. and those kids that don't have phones are actually performing really well in my classes, like better than their peers. Not to say that there aren't students who have their phones that aren't doing well, but the kids who don't have their phones are almost like the ones that come to mind. They're all doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you want to give them autonomy, give them autonomy, but you can limit that to not school and maybe it's at home. And yeah. so that brings me to another thought. You want to do uh, technology with your kids as much as you can. You want to be as close to it as you can. Um, meaning whether that's using it together or it's the conversation component where you're checking in and and that's kind of a, a strange thing, you know, because kids don't really want to talk to their parents as they become teenagers mm-hmm. as much. Mm-hmm. Um but there's ways into a conversation with a teenager. Yeah. Even if it's 
through someone else. Yeah. So a mentor in the church, someone who's investing and discipling your team. Um, yeah, partner. A partner. Yeah, yeah, having partners that can connect as well is important because you you got to know you can't just turn a blind eye, which is what I think most parents feel is the only option. I gave them this phone, and how could I know they don't want to talk to me? Yeah. Don't settle with that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Pastor Kenny Morgan. I think it was even on an episode of uh, of the Postscript. You know, back in the day, talked about this idea that um, his kids know that at any given time he's going to request that phone mm-hmm. and he's going to check and he's going to peruse and see what they're looking at. It, it's like, it's like random drug testing or something. Yeah. Same idea. Um, and I think it's important, you know, I, I've always told my kids that everything that they see in, in, in our house belongs to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's important. I'm setting myself up for the years to come because, because mm-hmm. kids do get convinced that when you buy them a toy on their birthday, that that toy belongs to them. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it in those terms, your toys, this is my... So then what happens is when their sibling is playing with that toy, they make a declaration, my toy, yeah. you know, this is my, this is mine. And then it creates a fight that's completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So what I remind the kids in my ha- house is that actually everything you see belongs to me. Yeah. And I've granted you access to it. Yeah. And so when you have a phone, uh, that phone actually belongs to me. I paid for same. it. Um, and it, and I'm, it's on loan to you mm-hmm. and I can, I can claim it at any given point that that phone, I have the right to access it as long as you live under my house and I, and I feed you. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that that kind of approach, obviously with love, mm-hmm. not in a demanding way, right. in a, in a, um, in a, in a collaborative way right. is important, is really important because we, our kids should know that there's some level of accountability. Right. And accountability is a part of this. So maybe you can speak into a, an accountability relationship between parents as it concerns the phone and, and, um, and you know, especially as, at, t- at the age of a teenager. Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying, even when you start that early on, you're developing in them, um, you're giving them the option to not be just solely individualistic. Like this stuff is mine, 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 mine. So they're, they're already... Uh, seeing a way out of the me monster inside themselves. Like, mm-hmm. I can't, I actually belong to dad and all my stuff belongs to dad. And so that from an early age translates later on, like you're saying, into this relationship where this phone, it belongs to you. And so I have to, I have to give you access to it. But then like what you're saying is it can be in a collaborative way. It makes me think of what I would like to, what I hope to do is with with my kids and and what I would suggest to other parents is okay so you got you got your phones everybody's got your phones you get home and maybe you have that time where you all everybody puts their phones yeah. in a basket yeah and and nobody's doing tech for whatever right an hour or two yeah and then you get them out and maybe you're doing something together on them or you're just like it's free time or whatever yeah, yeah. um and then at nighttime hey at 8:30 before everybody right. gets in bed Phones, all of our phones are yeah. in the basket. Yeah. And I think you're proving to them, hey, this isn't just about you not having a phone. It's proving to them that I, I don't want to be attached to right. it either. We are countercultural. We're not individualistic. We're in this together. And we're going to live a life of moderation, and we're not going to let this thing yeah. consume our family. And so what you're saying right now, I, I think, is 
is wonderful. Some of our listeners are going to say to themselves, that sounds a little extreme. That sounds, they might even say to themselves, that sounds legalistic. Well, I, I, we already have constructs in our families that we develop, uh, boundaries that we create, um, that we function within, right? Um, in the morning, as a family, we get up at this time. We go, we go to sleep at this time. Mm-hmm. We eat dinner as a family at this time. Yeah. And, we, and we create constructs that are unique to the culture of our home. There is no reason why we can't create boundaries in 2023, mm-hmm. create boundaries related to technology, knowing that, that technology is inundating our home. It's, it's right. infringed itself. It's, it's, it's imposed itself, if you will, yeah. on our home. And so we need to exercise some sort of authority over it or it will, over, it will overtake. Mm-hmm. And so putting the phones in a basket or doing whatever, you know, I think is actually wise and when everyone participates, it sets a standard that is is cultural, mm-hmm. and I think that is really really important. Yeah, and if it, it may sound legalistic, but the students I have at work would they would agree to that in a heartbeat. Yeah, and it would be tough. You know, I have a ba- I have a box that um, you know that we're attempting a phone policy. Mm-hmm. Schools are pushing back now. You know, it used to be there's a phone policy, and then they were like, you can do whatever you want. And then mm-hmm. now we're like, wow, you shouldn't do whatever you want. So we need to get control of the classrooms right. again. And I have a box. And there's always students who refuse. No, I'm not giving you my phone. Well, okay. Like, there's consequences for that. Or, you know, I yeah. can play that multiple ways. Yeah. There's some students who don't have one. There's some students who will keep it away. But there's always students who are like, yeah, that's, that's best for me. Yeah, right. They, are, they, they are, voluntarily. They know, they know. They don't want it. Yeah. They don't yeah. want the temptation. They want because students more and more are are discerning that I kind of want just like to hang out to with people. Free. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, what we're talking about is really interesting too. When I was young, you know, my mom was uh, raised us in in kind of a fundamentalist setting, and um, she was very strict about the types of movies that we watched. So she gave us very what I, at the time I thought was kind of unfair. There was there was things that I wanted to see, I wanted to have access to that she wouldn't let us watch. Now and now that I'm older, I really really appreciate that. The problem is I also grew up in the the age of Napster and LimeWire, mm. so she didn't know anything about that. She wasn't aware of that technology, right? Mm. And so I was able to access music that she would have never have approved of. Mm. And now as an adult, I look back and I regret. The things that I put in my ears, it absolutely did affect my behavior, the way mm. that I saw the world, the, the, my worldview. And I can look back and I can say, I wish that I wouldn't have circumvented the the desires of my mom mm. by getting access to something I didn't that she didn't know about. I think as parents, we really need to be aware of the technologies that our our kids are getting, mm. so that we can set proper parameters that will in the long run be able to protect them from getting into things that they that they really shouldn't be getting into. Yeah. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask about what does a parent do? How should a parent respond when they discover that a, their child has um, gone too far and has accessed something or seen something or been participating in something on the internet or in social media that they shouldn't have had access to? How, how does a parent deal with the consequential aspects of wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on the parent, obviously, but I would say if, if you're a parent and you, if, you know, you find out your kids looking or doing something that you know is is wrong and, and harmful to them, 
if you don't know what to do, you should reach out to your pastors for help. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, the parents who do know how to respond, typically it looks like, um, you know, there's a consequence. So let's say my phone leads me to uh, look at pornography. Well, then my parent, this has been the case, the parent takes the phone away, removes the privilege. Mm-hmm. And then, like you say, earns that you, you can earn that trust back. And it looks like this, but there's softwares, there's programs that can be protective, that can create accountability. Um, the Covenant Eyes uh, app mm-hmm. software, where you can have your internet activity be sent to different people, parents, mm-hmm. whatever. I, there's also another student who I have, who I just discovered this on my iPhone this week. She, she, her parent, her mom put um, a screen time. Uh, control. Yeah. So y- she literally can only use her certain apps and only apps in general for a certain amount of time per day. And it runs out. She's always out. Yeah. She's always run out. She's like, yeah, my phone doesn't work, you know? Yeah. But she carries it around anyways. But I think there are different things. Mm-hmm. These companies have thought about this could be harmful for kids. Mm-hmm. They know it. Yeah. And so there are things out there, and you just got to connect. You got to yeah. find what they are, and, and you got to reach out to to the people you know that can help you find them to mm-hmm. do it. But. And also, I, I think what's really, really important is, like you mentioned earlier, is the love component. Because at the end of the day, as we grow our children up into adulthood, um, we have to remember that accountability is always voluntary. Mm-hmm. You know, at the point that they're grownups. Um, they are going to have to want accountability in order for it to be profitable. Otherwise, it's just a word. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean anything. And I think love between a parent and a, and a child promotes a desire for the safety of accountability, right? Mm-hmm. There, there, there can be cultivated in the relationship. Okay, you've me- you've messed up. It doesn't change the fact that I love you. It doesn't change the fact that that I ca- I care for you. I'm going to protect you, and, and we're going to take some steps to protect you in this season. But I want you to know, here's the reasons why we're doing that. And, and this, is, this is why I'm in your corner. It might take you a while to figure out that I'm actually for you, but, but I'm going to prove that. And we're going to keep talking about it. And, mm-hmm. we're gonna, and you're going to know that I am your parent, mm-hmm. <laughs> that God made me to oversee your life in love you know, and in charity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to not be reactive or angry or... or Mm-hmm. frustrated or disappointed in yourself because kids do mess up and it's not it's not always the parents fault yeah you know kids just mess up because they're kids and I think what's important is that we respond the right way and cultivate a relationship so that when they're 23 24 20 45 mm-hmm. they enjoy and appreciate accountability and they invite people in because they recognize that it's founded in love and not laws the goal for that too is like the world is crazy mm-hmm. I and mean, the world is absolutely chaotic and, and scary mm-hmm. and it's dangerous and we're going to send our kids into it and that's a scary idea and not reacting from a place of fear but reacting from a place of love and, and a place that says I'm going to intentionally train my children to love the Lord but to be warriors for mm-hmm. the Lord mm-hmm. and like you know that that mentality will have to develop over time but like I you know I'm going to train them to know how to use this thing well and to discern what's right and wrong and to and to be able to have a heart and a vision over the course of this adolescence. It's going to get sketchy and it's going mm-hmm. to get hard, but I the goal is not to survive it. Mm-hmm. And the goal is not, well, 
hope it works out. The goal is they are going to get through it, and I'm going to be right there next to them so that by the time they're through adolescence, they're, they've been through. They've mastered it. They've mastered it. They've been mm-hmm. through some significant, scary trials, and their faith is greater for right. it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Jeff, an important topic. Thank, thank you for sitting down with us. Um, I think parents will really profit from this perspective, and, and so I'm grateful that you were willing to sit down with me and, and chat about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good. And we want to thank you for hanging out with us for this episode of The Postscript. Uh, we've had a lot of people tell us that they've enjoyed the episodes that deal with parenting and, and these conversations that, that deal with the home and ministry and spiritual things related to the family. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that we had this really important conversation. It's a void in the armor uh, of a lot of parents. And so I hope, I hope it was good for you today. Now, I do want to invite you that if you want to grow in your spiritual maturity, your understanding of God's Word, your ability to pl- apply principles from God's Word, if you want to have a proper biblical worldview, uh, we want to invite you to check out LFBI. And we want to invite you to come take classes with us because we believe that the Word of God will prepare you for everything, including situations just like this. And, and the more we get God's perspective— on the world, and we get God's perspective on our families, uh, the better prepared we'll be to respond to anything that comes our way, whether it be something related to technology or, or something else, that the trials of this world will only bring us joy because we'll know how to overcome, because we've been made overcomers. And so come hang out with us in LFBI. Living Faith Bible Institute is a two-year associate's degree program. Uh, a lot of people are committed to that program to finish it Uh, get grown up to be pastors and and, and leaders and church planters. But a lot of people just take classes to uh, grow in their faith and and be better prepared to navigate the world. And so we want to invite you to do either of those things. With all that said, we love you. We're grateful for your time. And we want to invite you back next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.